Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to, where am I? Mythgard Academy. That's where I am. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. I, I often have these moments when I can't remember. I'm like actually looking at the slide, and yet I still am like, wait, I, I almost just said exploring the Lord of the Rings, which was absolutely last night, so not tonight. Good evening, everybody. Back to Alice in Wonderland here tonight, and if we are quite efficient which is one of our calling cards here at the Mythgard Academy, um, we should be able to get through Owls in Wonderland tonight. Here's hoping. We'll see how we do there. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, thanks for joining me. This has been... Um, uh, uh, this has been uh, uh, quite a day already today. Um, just had a wonderful discussion with uh, John Howe uh, earlier this afternoon on Other Minds and Hands. Uh, that was uh, a delightful day. And um, I'm going to be, we're not going to be able to meet for, um, uh, for, for this, for, uh, uh, for, the, for, I think, uh, well, actually, Maybe I will. We'll see. I'll keep you posted. <laughs> My travel plans are changing by the day now, um, so I'm not really sure uh, exactly um, <laughs> what's happening <laughs> week to week. Um, I'm doing a bunch of traveling in these next couple weeks. Uh, I've been invited to participate in the um, Rings of Power premiere event things that are happening at various places in the world. Uh, so I'm going to be, uh, doing that stuff. Um, uh, and as they say, my own <laughs> travel plans keep changing, uh, as, uh, uh, time is uh, moving forward here. It is super fun, Jocelyn. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a great time. I know there are times when I'm like, man, this is a little bit insane. Uh, all these things that are going on, but you know what? Like, it's a fun insane that I will look back on uh, happily, you know, 10 years from now. Uh, and uh, I'm sure would have been sorry to miss. Uh, so uh, anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I agree. <laughs> is that you, JJ? For some reason, JJ, yes, it is. Your name shows up on my screen as blue lettering on a slightly darker blue background so I can almost never actually make out your I'm like I can usually guess when it's you but um anyway uh yeah JJ is quoting we cannot look too far ahead let us be glad that the first stage is safely over agreed those words of Gandalf are uh just exactly uh, what I'm trying to uh, what I'm trying to uh take to take to heart here um but anyway, um, lots of fun and exciting things uh, going on around the Signum world. I wanted to make sure uh, folks know about our upcoming moots. We've got um, uh, Mountain Moot is our next regional moot. Uh, so we're going to be out in Denver, which is awesome. I've never been to Denver before. So I've been to Cincinnati, which was my first time there, and to Denver, which is my first time there also. Uh, two brand new moots and two brand new cities this year. So our 2022-23 uh, our, our regional moot uh cycle is off to a, a an exciting start. Uh, anyway, Denver on the 24th of September is going to be our next, um, uh, is going to be our next uh, uh, regional moot, uh, mountain moot. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, 
Uh, and then, of course, we have uh, several more moots to follow with that in October. Uh, we have Middle Moot out in Kansas City, Missouri on the 8th of October, and then New England Moot on the 15th of October here in New Hampshire, um, up at the facilities of my good friends at uh, Studio Lab up in Derry, New Hampshire. Um, and then... Um, uh, and then we have SoCal Moot down in Carlsbad, California on November 5th. Uh, so we've got a, a, a fun, packed Moot season. Oh, I should also mention in the middle of that, on the 22nd of October, um, uh, out in Milwaukee at Marquette University is the Prancing Pony Moot. I'm going I'm to be uh, there. I'm going to be speaking there. Um, always good friends with the folks at the Prancing Pony. Um, some of you may have heard uh, Sean Marchese has, to, has had to step down from... Um, uh, co-hosting the uh, Prancing Pony podcast. Uh, he's going to be uh, finishing his time with the podcast uh, soon, uh, in, a, in about a month or so. Um, and um, they've... Um, uh, uh, I'm going to be helping uh, to sort of help help them in their transition there a little bit. So I'm going to be joining Alan as a guest co-host there on the Prancing Pony podcast um, as, right after Sean leaves, basically. It'll be my... Uh, I'm going to try to do my part to uh, use the transition there uh, into the difficult post-Sean world uh, of the Prancing Pony. Um, so I'm going to be joining Alan um, for the very beginning of uh, the Book 5 uh, discussion there. Leaping, springing forward into the Return of the King already. Wow. Um, but um, anyway, so uh, that's... Um, uh, that's, so that's going to be October twenty second. Is the Prancing Pony moot? Um, so that's uh, that's going to be that's going to be fun too. And of course, many other things happening. In case you hadn't heard, I wanted to mention um, Maggie Park and I are doing are producing and hosting a show. It's a, an analysis show of the Rings of Power. So if you're interested in doing a sort of Tolkien deep dive uh, into the Rings of Power show, um, uh, show the Amazon show that's coming out soon, um, we're going to be doing uh, this new. Uh, show and it's it's a real departure for me. As you guys know, um, <clears throat> my normal style is um, spontaneous and rambling, and as you can, and relatively low tech uh, around here. Um, the uh, Rings and Realms show, Rings and Realms exploring uh, uh, Prime Videos, Rings of Power, uh, Rings of Power, is going to be so the the new show that I'm doing um, is going to be um, a pre-recorded, edited, fully. Uh, fancily produced um, uh, show. It's going to be so it's going to be more like a real professional TV show and I'm really excited for this. It's going to be a totally new experience um, uh, a totally new experience for me. Um, I'm actually going to be filming. Uh, we're doing a, our, our first episode, episode zero basically, uh, an introductory episode um, which will drop on the 31st of August um, and I'm going to be going in and filming that tomorrow so, you know, I'm like going in for my film shoot, uh, which is that's like, I've once done that uh, ever in my life and uh, that was just an interview. Um, so anyway it's a crazy, crazy kind of time, um, but um yeah, yeah. Um, so um, it's it's going to be <laughs> it's going to be interesting. Uh, but anyway, so I hope you'll uh, check that out. Uh, the Rings and Realms show has its own um, separate sort of channels uh, for right now. 
various reasons for that. But um, so if you if you can find the Rings and Realms show, um, uh, the YouTube channel, um, search for Rings and Realms there, and then uh, you can also go to our socials. Uh, to you know, we have uh, social media accounts for Rings and Realms on Twitter and Instagram and a bunch of other places. Um, uh, so I would. Um, uh, I would uh, encourage you guys to go check that out. It's going to be, as I say, it's going to be very different. It's going to be about thirty to sixty minutes uh, every week, um, and it's going to run for as long. It'll it'll drop usually, I believe, on Wednesday evenings is what we're looking at um, for um, uh, for the for the show drop, um, our show to drop uh, before the, ring, the next Rings of Power episode comes out the next day. So we'll be kind of leading into the next episode. But the idea of it is we're not doing um, just a reaction show. We're doing an analysis show. So it's going to be like, take some time, think about it a little bit, uh, and then kind of do a deep dive together uh, there. So um, anyway, that's going to be, and who knows, <laughs> maybe there'll be more. Who knows? Uh, uh, all kinds of things going on uh, around here um, with the, all the excitement leading up to the launch. But um, and yes, I did um, uh, Spartan. Yeah, I um, did that interview with John Howe this afternoon. Seriously, like you know, I, I really recommend it for those of you who have a chance to see it. Uh, Other Minds and Hands episode of uh, 17, which we just did this afternoon. The one that we recorded live, the audio was came out wonky. Um, we're going to have a clean version of that. We do have a clean version of that, which we will be able to post to YouTube, um, where you can hear. The problem was John Howe's audio was really faint, um, but we, uh, we can fix that, and we are fixing that. Um, but um, anyway... Um, uh, so uh, we'll post a clean video of that, but it was an awesome discussion, man. Um, we just, you know, hearing John Howe talk about his artistic process, and we did a lot of talk about adaptation and, uh, you know, the relationship between art and, you know, like what art, what it, what it, what it means to be an artist and how art works and uh, and adaptation works. And, and we talked about Tolkien and Tolkien as an artist, Tolkien as a visual artist, uh, and, uh, and and as a writer. It was just, uh, it was just uh a fascinating, fascinating discussion. Exactly, Tomas. We're going to be releasing a, re a digitally remastered version of that episode uh, very soon. That's exactly... Tomas, I'm going to call it that from now on. This will be the remastered version of the John Howe interview, and it's, 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 going, to be, it's going to be fantastic. So, anyway, uh, so much fun stuff happening. Um, but, um, anyway, um, let us move on with the uh, uh, efficiency that I <laughs> alluded to earlier on uh, and uh, get back into Alice. So uh, we're in the home stretch of Alice in Wonderland when she is returning to the court of the King and Queen of Hearts uh, and finds a trial is going on, right? So uh, we have here her um, observations about the 12 jurors, right? Our twelve creatures, good and true. The twelve jurors were all writing very busily on slates. What are they doing? Alice whispered to the griffin. They can't have anything to put down yet before the trial's begun. They're putting down their names, the griffin whispered in reply, for fear they should forget them before the end of the trial. Stupid things, Alice began in a loud, indignant voice. But she stopped herself hastily, for the white rabbit cried out, Silence in the court! And the king put on his spectacles and looked anxiously around to make out who was talking. 
Alice could see, as well as if she were looking over their shoulders, that all the jurors were writing down stupid things on their slates. And she could even make out that one of them didn't know how to spell stupid, and that he had to ask his neighbor to tell him. A nice muddle their slates will be in before the trial's over, thought Alice. Okay, um, so what do we see going the 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 jurors I'm going to be focusing a lot on the jurors because I find the jurors um, one of the most interesting elements of this whole courtroom scene, right? So we think about the sort of the primary actors. So we remember that the trial, this is, you know, uh, in the Queen of Hearts court, this is, you know, the sort of um, the trial of the century, right? Um, Which is the trial of the Knave of Hearts uh, for stealing the tarts. He's being accused of stealing the tarts. Um, and the question is, uh, you know, what is, uh, what is, what is going to happen to him? There are major players. Of course, we have the knave himself, though he makes very little contribution to the trial itself. The king is the judge, right? Um, we have the queen of hearts who doesn't seem to have an official role, um, other than, of course, to order executions. Um, she's keen on the sentence, right? Um, but, um, I just seems to have a sort of advisory uh, be there in a sort of advisory capacity uh, in the trial. She's also in in a sense not quite the plaintiff. I mean, she's sort of the injured party. I mean, it seemed to have been her tarts uh, that were taken. Um, but um, but in any case, uh, she doesn't. She's not a, doesn't seem to be an official of the court, unlike the king. Um, and then, of course, we as they say, we have the jurors, the white rabbit is sort of like the bailiff or something. There don't seem to be barristers that I could tell anyway uh, in this trial. Um, The Queen of Hearts continues to do her thing. Again, order executions, right? Um, My my favorite moment is when the Mad Hatter is leaving um, and she tells him he can go anytime he wants and then turns to the the guy standing next to her and says, and do cut his head off uh, as soon as he gets to the door, (laughs) right? But of course, um, uh, there is an enormously small percentage, uh, like the ratio um, of, uh, 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 well, executed executions uh, to ordered executions is, is, is very small indeed. Right? I don't think anyone is actually executed at any point. Um, the Queen seems to mostly enjoy ordering the executions rather than actually seeing those executions carried out. Um, but um, anyhow, uh, the King as judge is... Um, well, we'll talk some about his sort of procedural issues. A bunch of the wordplay is focused on the king, right? And several, and of course, we do bring in the Mad Hatter as a as a witness, right? Uh, you know, giving testimony here, and so there's a good deal of wordplay going on there as well. Um, JJ, I wonder if the Queen did misunderstand the term "cut the deck." Um, yeah, she certainly uh, she certainly seems prepared uh, to do that, but. Um, The jurors now. The jurors all have their slates, and their slates are clearly for taking notes on, right? Um, The idea is that the jurors are supposed to declare the verdict, right? That's that's how this works. The jurors decide the verdict. They they take in all of the evidence. Um, They... Based on the evidence and the summing up 
by the judge. This in British courts, this is how it works, right? Um, the judge sums up the evidence uh, for the jury, you know, for the benefit of the jurors, and then they deliberate. They decide the verdict, and then the judge passes the sentence. Once the if assuming there's a guilty verdict, uh, then the judge passes the sentence. That's the normal way of things, and so therefore the um, jurors sitting with their slates ready to take notes. Um, in a sense, this is where like the um, the critical action in the trial is right. The the slates of the jurors would be full of telling points, right, in the evidence, uh, things that they wanted to make sure to write down, to bring up in their discussions and deliberations uh, over guilt and innocence. And um, uh, instead, we have them, you know, Alice, so uh, this is why Alice is confused when she sees them all writing, because she says they can't have anything to put down yet before the trial's begun, because their role is to make observations based on what they've heard, and they can't have heard anything yet. Right. Um, and Carrie, you can imagine one or two of them doodling, perhaps. Right. But they're, they're all very assiduously writing, apparently. Um, so the Griffin tells her they're putting their names down, which is a slightly silly thing for them to be doing. Um, though I suppose one could just justify it by saying they're wanting to make sure that, you know, their slates don't get mixed up with somebody else's slates or something, perhaps. Um, but the Griffin then adds, for fear they should forget them before the end of the trial, uh, which moves it from slightly silly to completely absurd, right? Um, if there is indeed a legitimate fear that the jurors are going to forget their own names <laughs> by, before the end of the trial, um, then we're in a certain degree of trouble. Uh, from a forensic standpoint, right, for this trial. And Alice is indignant. Stupid things. Um, now, she's spoken out of turn. And uh, she stops herself hastily, because I, I, I believe... Now, it's interesting, because on the one hand, she has said something offensive, um, that if the creatures here, they would be, you know, sort of... They would take offense at this. And of course, we remember Alice has had a problem saying offensive things before. Um, in the past, though, she didn't, she re never really seemed very self conscious about this. Her stopping herself hastily seems to be in that, you know, she seems to have more or less turned over a new leaf in the latter portions of this book, um, gained in some self awareness about her words and the impact uh, of their words. Um, but of, of her words, but at the same time, she's also in a courtroom, right? So it seems that it is probably um, less that she's worried that she might offend the jurors by having them hear her call them stupid things, and more that she is worried about disrupting the court or getting in trouble for disrupting the court, as indeed would seem to be borne out by the fact that the White Rabbit immediately calls for silence in the court, and the king is looking around um, to try to see who was talking, right? So she almost did get in trouble for saying that. But then what seems to be, to Alice, sort of the crown of the thing is that now, looking over the shoulders of the jurors, she finds them taking notes, right? They're writing down stupid things. Um, remember, they were just writing their names. So they've got their names on the top and then stupid things, almost like a title, <laughs> right, underneath it. Um, and... Um, so we have this image of the jurors being 
wholly undiscerning in what they're writing down, right? I mean, it's there's a there's a kind of um, there's I don't know there's a kind of uh, there's a kind of meta stupidity involved in this, right? Like they are um, the idea that they're in danger of forgetting their own names before the end of the trial earns them the label stupid things by Alice, uh, but then they're um, diligently noting down right that they've been called stupid things by Alice um, is itself a fairly stupid thing to do, right? And again, once again, making, sort of compounding it one more time, right, is that um, uh, one of them didn't know how to spell stupid, Alice notice, uh, notices, and had to ask his neighbor to tell him. Um, and now she's like, a nice muddle their slates will be in before the trial's over, right? The inversion, right? So, well, it's kind of an inversion, but kind of not. It's an inversion in the sense that, an inversion of the trial procedure, in the sense that, again, the jurors are supposed to be the ones who are taking in and wisely evaluating the information and, uh, you know, offering their honest opinions on the facts of the case, and they seem to be wholly clueless, and indeed it does seem more than a little bit stupid. Um, and so this would seem to be a problem. But at the same time, there's also not a reversal, but some satire here, right? Um, of course, the idea of British jury trials, um, which, of course, America more or less, you know, incorporated, um, uh, the whole concept is that, uh, you know, uh, 12 men good and true uh, is the um, traditional phrase that I... Uh, um, uh, adapted there for my subtitle of this slide. Um, the idea is that it doesn't require expertise. It doesn't require you don't need training. Um, the idea is that in order for a trial, a trial will be most fair if it is determined by 12 sensible people of good standing in the community, right? Men, traditionally. Um, it was a while before women were allowed onto juries. Um, uh, certainly when the whole jury system was developed, it was men. Um, but anyway, you've got four, 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 twelve, twelve citizens, right? Twelve citizens um, who are, you know, sort of normal, sensible, not specially trained, right? Um, but, uh, you know, retaining their natural wisdom and their good sense uh, uh, and their uh, and their civic duty. And that if they put their heads together, they can they can see, you know, the right and wrong of things. Um, and so. In a sense, of course, one of the things that you have in a British jury trial is that the ultimate decision in the trial, the decision of, you know, the verdict of the trial is left up to the only people in the room who have no training whatsoever, right? The, 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 the people who are potentially, and in some cases deliberately, um, the most ignorant, right? The most, uh, um, uh, as I say, untrained uh, 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 potentially poorly educated, right? Um, and that's not uh, that's not a, a glitch. That's a feature, right? That's a feature of the jury trial as it is traditionally understood. Um, yeah, Carrie says, kind of like the constables' uh, trial in Much Ado About Nothing. Yeah, that would actually be a really fun uh, kind of comparison, actually. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Uh, between that trial and this trial, yes, we're going to get a brief, well, not a trial, a discussion of a trial uh, in uh, in through the looking glass as well. But um, 
but yeah, so there's, a, I think, a little bit of satire here. In, I, I think it's, it's good-natured satire. I doubt that uh, Lewis Carroll is seriously suggesting that the, uh, you know, the, the jury system is, uh, you know, ridiculous, uh, and, you know, that he's really critiquing it uh, in earnest. But I think there's some gentle fun uh, being sort of poked at that here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> right. J.J. is quoting the famous Dave Barry line. Uh, the Sixth Amendment states that if you are accused of a crime, you have the right to a trial before a jury of people too stupid to get out of jury duty. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's kind of that's kind of the joke here, I think. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Spartan, it's sort of the joke, right, that the verdict depends on stupid on on the stupid things. Right. It's uh, it's all up to the stupid things to 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 determine it. And the thing is, is like that's what's funny about it is that that's not a joke. Right. There, there are many funny things going on in the rest of the trial, uh, like the Queen's insistence that the sentencing should happen first and the verdict afterwards. Right. Um, the King's rather ponderous repetition, like how he's always, he's always instructing the jury, uh, to think over, uh, and come to their verdict. Like it's, uh, you know, he does that like all the time. And then the white rabbit has to keep telling him, wait, no, 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 there, there's more evidence. Right. Um, uh, so the King keeps jumping the gun on, uh, on beginning his summing up for the jury. Uh, the queen wants the whole thing to work backwards. Um, and meanwhile, the in a sense the the most sort of inappropriate the biggest joke in the whole trial is the jurors the stupid things here um except that's that's actually the one thing that is sort of like the real world uh they're the only ones doing it right in a sense um so i, I do think that there's a little bit of gentle fun uh being poked at that system here um but anyway um herald read the accusation said the king on this, the white rabbit blew three blasts on the trumpet and then unrolled the parchment scroll and read as follows. The queen of hearts, she made some tarts all on a summer day. The knave of hearts, he stole those tarts and took them quite away. Consider your verdict, the king said to the jury. Not yet, not yet, the rabbit hastily interrupted. There's a great deal to come before that. Call the first witness, said the king, and the white rabbit blew three blasts on the trumpet and called out, First witness! That's, of course, that's the king's line. Consider your verdict is the thing. He, 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 I don't know how many times he says that. Three times? Four times? Uh, and the rabbit has to keep interrupting him and saying, wait, no, 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 it's not time to consider their verdict yet. Um, so uh, this is... Um, uh, oh, thank you. What a wonderful question, uh, Modillion. Uh, Modillion was asking, were slates actually used in trials or was this a reference to Allison's school? That's a really great point. I don't know. I mean... Uh, I mean, obviously not in modern trials would you have a slate and chalk uh, to take your notes on. I don't know if that was a method of note-taking earlier on, um, but I suspect, at the very least, it has to be reminiscent of Alice in class um, uh, in, in, in her lessons, right? Because uh, a girl in her lessons would certainly be using a slate like that. Um, so whether or not it was actual jury practice, I don't know. Um, but um, uh, but whether it is or not, uh, Modili and I agree with you. I think that once again we see that part of Alice's world, um, her lessons, which is such a big part of Alice's real world, um, that that it seems kind of bleeding through here. And notice, Modili, and what that does with the whole stupid things thing. 
right? Remember how very uh, proud of her learning Alice is, right? She dislikes lessons, but she enjoys knowing things and feels very superior for knowing things. Her condemnation of the jurors as stupid things is very much in keeping with her puffed-up attitude towards her own learning, right? So there, And the fact that they're writing on slates does interject this... Um, sort of co-students. Like it kind of puts them on a similar level, right, as students in class. So um, her kind of separating herself from them is um, seems relevant to her whole educational um, thing. Mighty Felix, I agree. The jurors may as well be Mabel. Yeah, exactly. I, I couldn't agree more about that. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jocelyn, uh, it is true that slates are useful for cracking over the heads of impertinent boys, but not exclusively uh, for that purpose. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, my uh, sons were big fans of that scene, uh, by the way. That's it, a, 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 a Anne of Green Gables reference for folks who don't recognize the Anne of Green Gables reference. Um uh, they have uh, in. Uh, I was just in, in Prince Edward Island last month uh, on my that little uh, second honeymoon I went on with my wife, um, and I I always like the fact that uh, in the Green Gables house uh, um, in Cavendish, uh, in uh, Anne's room upstairs in the Green Gables house, uh, they have a, a a broken slate sitting on a chair. A little quiet reference to uh, uh, to to that uh, delightful slate. Crash, cracking scene. Um, anyway, okay. So, the accusation, right? The accusation is the first verse of a nursery rhyme, right? Um, and it's delightful how this gets integrated, right? Um, this is, I believe, more or less word for word, the nursery rhyme, right? Uh, um the Queen of Hearts, she made some tarts all on a summer day. The Knave of Hearts, he stole those tarts and took them quite away. Taken out of its context, right, uh, this sounds very much uh, like uh, an accusation, right? A statement of the circumstances and then an accusation of the crime of the Knave of Hearts. Um, and... Um, Mighty Felix, I think this might be the only rhyme that is actually quoted correctly, which is interesting, of course, because whenever Alice opens her mouth to say poetry, to recite poetry that she knows, it comes out quite wrong, right? But when the White Rabbit reads out the poem, it comes out exactly right. Except wholly altered in context, right? Instead of being a fun nursery rhyme... It's now an accusation in a, a criminal courtroom, right? Um, so there's the obvious sort of, again, contextual displacement of this verse uh, of the nursery rhyme. Um, but it does. It does come out right. And I think here's the full, um, uh, the full thing. The queen of hearts, she made some tarts all on a summer's day. The knave of hearts, he stole those tarts and took them clean away. Um, close. Quite away. Isn't that the only difference here, I think? Yeah. It is. Um, well, there's the apostrophe S in summer, all on a summer day versus all on a summer's day. 
but that doesn't seem very significant. I'm not sure that quite and clean... Yeah, JJ was just noticing that, too. I don't know that quite and clean are necessarily a, necessarily a major change. Um, it's a little bit interesting, because unnecessary, in a sense, right? Um, but anyway, it then goes on, the verse that is not quoted in the accusation. The king of hearts called for the tarts and beat the knave full sore. The knave of hearts brought back the tarts and vowed he'd steal no more. So you can see why they didn't continue reading the nursery rhyme, because this would have been highly prejudicial to the outcome of the trial, right? Um, where, uh, so, and, but we can see the context. Like, clearly, Lewis Carroll assumes we know the rest of the, the, the nursery rhyme, right? Um, and so looking at the rest of the nursery rhyme there, um, we can see the context this places the whole trial in, right? On the one hand, the fact that the knave is on trial for stealing the tarts is funny uh, on the one hand because, of course, he's given no trial. Um, the king of hearts calls for the tarts. I believe that means, like, he called for them so that he could eat them, right? You know, he, he, he wants the tarts, but the queen makes tarts and, and, and the king calls for them because he wants to eat them, only to find that they've been stolen, by the knave of hearts, right? Um, so, and there's no gap, right? It just goes straight from him calling for the tarts and thereby presumably discovering the crime, right? Straight to the sentence, right? He beats the knave full sore as soon as he discovers that the tarts are not there anymore. And then the knave of hearts brought back the tarts and vowed he'd steal no more. So we see um, there's no investigation into the guilt of the knave. Um, instead, this is a story of uh, crime and punishment and the salutary effects thereof, right? I mean, the conclusion of this, the happy ending of this, uh, of this uh, little nursery rhyme um, is the amendment of the knave of hearts. The knave of hearts, having been beaten full sore, uh, for, you know, he, he did wrong, he stole the tarts. Um, his uh, his wrongdoing is discovered. He receives punishment for this, and having received this punishment, um, he repents of his action. He brings back the tarts, right? He there's he performs restitution uh, for his act, uh, and then vows that he's going to change his ways. Right? Um, the knave of hearts is a reformed character by the very end of this nursery rhyme. Um, so again, in one sense, what Lewis Carroll is doing in this whole episode is sort of extend, he's kind of filling in the gap there, right? Uh, the gap between the discovery that a crime had occurred and the sentencing, right? The punishment of the knave. And you think of the, um, the extra level of humor that this gives, for instance, to the queen's desire that we should proceed to the sentencing immediately. Uh, no, sorry. Yeah. No, proceed to the to the yeah to the sentencing immediately before the verdict, right? Because there is no verdict at all in the original, and um, uh, and uh, we do in fact proceed straight to the sentencing, which is beating him full sore, um, and the king, of course, who is overseeing the whole thing, uh, both the discovery of the crime and the beating, uh, you know, and the 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 the. Uh, punishment, apparently. Um, it, the nursery rhyme makes it sound like the king of hearts beats the knave personally, 
right? He doesn't just order him beaten, but actually beats him himself. Um, and um, But of course, so all of this is sort of overseen by the king. So putting the king into the judge's place, right? We're going to have a proper trial by jury, right, for the knave. Um, and the king, instead of merely summarily beating the knave, is going to oversee, is going to be the judge of the trial, right? Um, and But he's always trying to push things along. He's under the impression, clearly, that this trial should be over very quickly, as he keeps saying, consider your verdict uh, at every possible opportunity. Um, so again, we see this, uh, in, a, in this sense, therefore, these entire last two chapters of the book are like this literary joke on this. But notice what it's doing to this nursery rhyme. Think about what the misquotation of the poetry has done to the other poems that we've seen, right? The ways in which they're not just reversed and sort of made fun of. We don't only get really funny uh, parodies, um, you know, sort of silly things in the place of grave things. Um, but think, I think particularly of the, what was it, the Father William poem, um, where what we got was satire on that, um, uh, uh, yeah, satire on the, uh, the original verses, right? Um, you know, like, uh, the way that he's, uh, you know, offering to sell nostrums and things like that. Um, but, um, yeah, so, um, we, but we don't get it, Mighty Felix, as you point out, um, we don't get it in, um, uh, we don't get it in verse form. We don't just get a, you know, a funny parodic version of this. This comes in with the accusation read by the White Rabbit, who's doing it almost completely straight. I mean, I'm still willing to accept that pretty much as straight. Um, but incomplete, right? We don't get to the sentencing and the amendment, right? Um, this is like, um, what's the difference? If you, you can have a, you can have a prequel where you tell what comes before, you can have a sequel where you tell what happens after. What do they call it when you write another story of what happens in the middle? Right? I'm not sure what that's called, but whatever that is, that's, that's what we're getting here. Right. Um, a midquill, <laughs> an equal, <laughs> <laughs> I like that, Edith. <laughs> Any cool. Um, yeah, mid-quell, something like that seems to be what we're getting here. Um, uh, and that's, uh, but again, that, that whole thing is this is sort of a, a, a funny contemplation on the, uh, um, on the fairy tale. Or sorry, the nursery rhyme. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of my favorite lines in this whole book. Give your evidence, said the king, and don't be nervous, or I'll have you executed on the spot. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> oh, that line. Don't be nervous, or I'll have you executed on the spot. This did not seem to encourage the witness at all. He kept shifting from one foot to the other, looking uneasily at the queen, and in his confusion he bit a large piece out of his teacup instead of the bread and butter. This is the Mad Hatter, of course. Just at this moment, Alice felt a very curious sensation, which puzzled her a good deal until she made out what it was. She was beginning to grow larger again, and she thought at first she would get up and leave the court, but on second thoughts she decided to remain where she was as long as there was room for her. I wish you wouldn't squeeze so, said the Dormouse, who was sitting next to her. I can hardly breathe. I can't help it, said Alice meekly. I'm growing. You have no right to grow here, said the Dormouse. 
Don't talk nonsense, said Alice more boldly. You know you're growing, too. Yes, but I grow at a reasonable pace, said the Dormouse, not in that ridiculous fashion. Alice's growth here, now, of course, Alice's growth and shrinking and her uh, coming to be able to control her own size and decide what is the appropriate relative size and all that kind of thing, what's a good size and what's an awkward size to be and all those things that we've been seeing throughout the book. Um, This is the final movement of that, right? Her growth at the trial. And on the one hand, her growth is a one-way street, right? This is not something that's just going to wear off. Um, She is growing larger, and she's going to stay larger. Indeed, she's going to get back to her normal size, we're told. Um, And so there is something... uh, There's an air of finality here, in the sense that now she is... um, I mean, if she's been growing as a character, right, this is her final piece of character growth, and there's going to be no turning back from this. Um, But also, of course, a sense of departure, or imminent departure, at least, as she's returning to her normal size. And she returns to her normal size only just a little bit before she returns to her natural, to her normal place, right, to her normal world. Um, But, um, uh, anyway, in addition, of course, we have seen as she immediately, the connection that she immediately makes here with the Dormouse is a kind of connection that has been running through the whole book. That is the the sort of the irony, the the the, the wordplay almost on the concept of growing up, right? Um, growing up in the sense of merely getting bigger, right? From the very first scene when she was growing and shrinking and being like, well, you know, you shouldn't be crying, right? A big, a great big girl like you. Um, uh, of course, she's not changed at all other than her outward size, right? She's still the same size girl on the inside. And yet, I'm not sure. This, again, is a one-directional growth, and it's not quite the same as the other times. Um, notice how her own confidence changes a lot, too. Um, when she finally grows to full size at the end of the trial... Um, is when she stands up and defies the king and queen alike, right? Um, and dismisses the whole lot of them as a pack of cards, which, of course, ends the trial, and we never find out the verdict in the sentence uh, for the knave and whether he is, in fact, going to get his beating. Um, but um, anyway, um, so again, the conversation with the Dormouse draws attention to this, to this what has been a persistent wordplay uh, on growing up. Um, though, notice the Dormouse is dismissing Alice's growth as growing in that ridiculous fashion, right? That her growth is, this is not normal growth, this is not natural growth, this is ridiculous growth, this is absurd growth. Um, but of course, that to me, um, sort of offers, or not offers, it, um, it raises the question or the issue. Um, what is she... Where are we at the end of this story? Where are we supposed to be in our understanding of the sort of the relationship between or the relative value between being a child and being grown up, right? Um, we'll come back to that when we get to the end of the book. But again, I think we can see that being raised, being raised here. Um, Don't be nervous or I'll have you executed on the spot. 
king is a wonderful judge. Um, I'm hoping to use that line sometime. Um, okay. The miserable hatter dropped his teacup and bread and butter and went down on one knee. I'm a poor man, your majesty, he began. You're a very poor speaker, said the king. Here one of the guinea pigs cheered. <laughs> one of the jurors, who's a guinea pig, one of the guinea pigs cheered and was immediately suppressed by the officers of the court. <laughs> parenthesis. <laughs> I love this parenthesis. As that is rather a hard word, I will just explain to you how it was done. They had a large canvas bag, which tied up at the mouth with strings. Into this, they slipped the guinea pig head first and then sat upon it. That's how, that's how you suppress somebody. I'm glad I've seen that done, thought Alice. I've so often read in the newspapers at the end of trials, there was some attempt at applause, which was immediately suppressed by the officers of the court, and I never understood what it meant till now. If that's all you know about it, you may stand down, continued the king. I can't go no lower, said the hatter. I'm on the floor as it is. Then you may sit down, the king replied. Here the other guinea pig cheered and was suppressed. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. <clears throat> so we have <laughs> we have the, the whole-scale suppression of, of guinea pigs, which you'll remember Alice uh, is merely relieved <laughs> when all of the guinea pigs are finally gone because shoved into canvas sacks and sat upon, right? Um, so we have uh, sort of three levels of things here, right? Uh, one, if you sort of take out the parentheses there, right? If you read the thing without the parentheses, we have one thing happening, right? Here one of the guinea pigs cheered and was immediately suppressed by the officers of the court. And then you have her saying she's glad to see what that means. Um, and then at the end, the other guinea pig cheered and was suppressed, Right? Um, but, um, but yeah, so, um, and that, it sounds totally, it sounds exactly like the kind of quotation that Alice gives that you see this in the newspapers, right? That there was some attempt, some cheering or applause, um, and it's suppressed by the officers of the court. Um, so we're get what we get on the the sort of the top level is just another instance of that exact usage, right? The suppressing of the cheering of the guinea pigs, right? Um, and, but then you have Alice's comment, right? The second level is Alice's comment on this, right? That how she never understood what that meant. What does it mean when you say that the cheering was suppressed? Um, how is it done Exactly. I'm glad I've seen that done. Um, I never understood what it meant until now, but now that I've now that I've seen it done, um, I, I'm gratified because now I will always know what it means uh, when I read about somebody being suppressed at a trial. That too, by itself. Again, so if we just had the parenthesis and we didn't have Alice's commentary. Uh, or sorry, if we didn't have the parenthesis and we only had Alice's commentary, um, then this would be another instance of Alice not showing off her learning, but being happy to learn, right? Um, and this is how you learn what hard words mean. You uh, you read them and you don't understand them. You you sort of kind of get the sense of them through context, 
but you don't really know exactly what it's, you know, so you can get a general sense of what it means that um, the attempt at applause was immediately suppressed by the officers of the court. But you don't really know, like, what would it be? What would you see if you were there? Like, what did the officers of the court actually do in order to suppress the attempt at applause? Um, and so when you see it done with your own eyes, it's, it's very instructive. Again, that's just how you learn how these things how these things work, right? And then we get the third level, which is the parenthesis itself, right? Um, in which it's explained to us, the narrator explains to us, the readers, not to Alice. Alice is not getting that, right? The parenthesis means it's, uh, this is being said directly, aside to us as readers, um, um, and Alice is not involved in this statement, right? So the narrator gives us an aside, giving, giving us more detail, Right. And again, notice how this works. Right. This is exactly what Alice is normally lacking. Normally, when Alice is reading courtroom accounts in the newspaper, um, she just sees that they were suppressed and nobody's bothered to explain what that means. Right. But here, our narrator being kinder to us um, than the journalists are to Alice. Right. Or have been to Alice um, being indeed more thoughtful um, in helping us to expand our own vocabulary, um, the narrator explains to you how it was done. They had a large canvas bag which tied up at the mouth with strings. Into this they slipped the guinea pig headfirst and then sat upon it. That's what it means. That's how you suppress cheering. And I don't doubt, of course, you can't say... Um, uh, you can't say that that's not accurate. Um... I mean, this would effectually suppress cheering, right? I mean, the cheering is good. The cheering's done. Once we've suppressed all the guinea pigs, at least, right? Um, it takes a serial act of suppression. But once it's done, there is no more cheering, right? So the cheering has been a very effectually suppressed. So, um, yeah, there you are. I mean, it's, uh, again, it's not wrong. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's, it's not that that's not a, <laughs> a correct definition in a sense, right? Now, it's not what it generally means. And Alice's application, of course, is quite silly. Um, when she reads about the suppression of applause by officers of the court in the newspaper, it's unlikely that there were any canvas sacks involved whatsoever. Um, so again, it's not a complete definition nor a universal definition, um, but it kind of, it kind of works uh, um, uh, in a in a in a particular sense. But of course, really highlighting this is the sententious tone of the narrator in the first sentence of the parenthesis. As that is rather a hard word, I will just explain to you how it was done. Um, Mighty Felix, I'm sitting here like, what What am I, Mabel over here? <laughs> right? I haven't turned into Mabel, have I? Um, uh, the, the way that the narrator intervenes here, unasked, right? Um, unasked, I say, because unprompted by anything else in the story, right? I mean, if Alice had made a comment on it, right? Um, uh, you know, maybe Alice expressed that she didn't know what suppressed meant. Um, and then the narrator might take that occasion, right, to let us know or whatever. Um, 
but that's um, but that's not how this that's not how this works. The narrator's going way out of his way to explain to us how it's done, and then of course the explanation is well again not exactly wrong, but not exactly the sort of standard um, definition of suppression. Um, <laughs> oh man. Um, I, the trial scene is totally my favorite scene in this whole book. Okay, let's keep going, though. Um, the White Rabbit has just informed the king that he has to uh, cross-examine the cook. Uh, the duchess's cook has come out, and you'll remember her one piece of testimony when she's told she has to give her testimony, and she says, shan't. Um and that's when the king is told he's got to cross-examine her. Well, if I must, I must, the king said with a melancholy air. And after folding his arms and frowning at the cook till his eyes were nearly out of sight, he said in a deep voice, What are tarts made of? Pepper, mostly, said the cook. Treacle, said a sleepy voice behind her. Collar that dormouse, the queen shrieked out. Behead that dormouse. Turn that dormouse out of court. Suppress him. Pinch him. Off with his whiskers. For some minutes, the whole court was in confusion, getting the dormouse turned out, and by the time they had settled down again, the cook had disappeared. "'Never mind,' said the king, with an air of great relief. "'Call the next witness,' and he added in an undertone to the queen, "'Really, my dear, you must cross-examine the next witness. It quite makes my forehead ache.'" Now, um, I had, um, uh, I had completely missed this pun. Um, until the side comment to the queen. When we get the, um, uh, when we get the, uh, initial joke, right? If I must, I must. After folding his arms and frowning at the cook till his eyes were nearly out of sight. Okay. So at first I thought, the joke was just that um, he has to examine her crossly. Right? He has to be cross while doing it. So he crosses his arms and he frowns at her and asks the question in a very cross manner. Right? Um, that that's what cross-examining is like. But I think the making his forehead ache is connected with the one part of that first description I didn't understand at all. I can understand why he was folding his arms and frowning, but why did it say till his eyes were nearly out of sight? I mean, I guess he's sort of scrunching up so much that you can barely even see his eyes at all um, because he's frowning so profoundly. And I suppose that's possible. Um, yeah, with lowering brows, Tarlonio. But I also wonder if it mightn't mean something else. Um... Uh, do you think he's perhaps actually crossing his eyes as well? That is literally cross-examining her, like examining her through crossed eyes, basically? Like, you know, until his eyes are disappearing, uh, nearly out of sight, like in the middle as well. Um, that didn't occur to me at all. I was just thinking about crossness uh, the, the first time through. Um, but the business about his forehead aching made me uh, um, made me wonder if he weren't um, 
crossing his eyes as well while he was doing that. Um, which, of course, would be an even more literal interpretation of the phrase, right? Um, because when you cross-examine someone, you're not looking at them, right? You're not examining them exactly, um, nor are you exactly, nor are you meant necessarily to be cross uh, while doing it. Um, what the king does by crossing, if he if he does in fact cross his eyes while looking at her, he is cross-examining her in the most um, literal possible way. Um, crossing my eyes makes my whole headache, Jocelyn. So I'm not sure. It's one of the things that made me think of it. Um, uh, okay, JJ says has just performed the experiment, and uh, that his forehead totally does start to ache if he puts uh, it really puts his muscles into crossing his eyes. I can I can see that crossing my eyes is a very I find it very uncomfortable uh, to do, especially when I'm wearing my progressive lenses. Um, but um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Right. Um, <laughs> you can't keep your eyes crossed long enough to see if anything hurts. Yeah, exactly. It's challenging. It's challenging. Um, you can see why the king wants to fob that uh, duty off on the queen, right? Um, why he's not uh, particularly enjoying that. Um, and of course, the cook vanishes. The witnesses take off very regularly. Um, now, why is she wanting to cut the whiskers off the poor Dormouse instead of decapitating him? I'm not really quite sure. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, I mean, she does start with behead him, so it's not like she's merely having mercy on it. Um, but, um, yeah, Edith says, if he does mean crossed eyes, this is the most laborious pun he's made in the book. Well, there are a bunch of them in this whole section, including the one the king has to explain, right? Um, yeah, yeah. But um, the king, I mean, uh, has to explain because nobody gets it. The pun that he's making about the queen's fits, you may remember. I'm not going to talk about that passage, but um, anyway, yeah. Okay, but let's keep going after cross-examining. Uh, but anyway, hang on, pausing. What's the point about the cross-examining? What is interesting about that? Um, there we see as a piece of like as as a piece of humor a piece of forensic humor right um we have the literally doing what um uh again the with the taking the words cross examining literally which is ironic because of course we've seen this happening in other places right this is all about what um, we saw with the uh, at the tea party, right? The mad tea party. The way that Alice's words were being taken, not what she meant, not what she was, say, but you know, not what she what what she said, and not what she meant, right? And of course, placing this whole thing in the forensic context puts a little extra pressure on this, doesn't it? Right? On the one hand, um, in a courtroom situation, it's particularly important what is said, right? Um, and ideally, the relationship between what one says and what one means, um, the whole drawing attention to the importance of interpretation, that's the juror's job, right, is interpreting the evidence that they hear in order to determine what was the thing that really happened, right, that everyone is talking about in their, in their testimony. Um, so 
the forensic situation, the courtroom situation, is a place that puts particular pressure on many of the issues that we've seen be really important uh, in this story. So this is why I think this serves as kind of like the crowning moment. Um, when we're going back over a bunch of this ground, um, but sort of doing it where it matters, right? Drawing attention to the fact that this is not just a whimsical thing. Um, it, it can make a big difference, right? A courtroom is an example of a place where it can make a big difference, the words that are chosen to be used, right? Um, <clears throat> and yet the same inversions, the same kind of silliness that we saw at the Mad Tea Party is happening throughout the courtroom scene as well, right? Kind of undermining all of that. Um, but, um, okay. Alice gets called for her testimony, right? She gets called to the stand at the beginning of chapter 12. What do you know about this business? The king said to Alice. Nothing, said Alice. Nothing whatever, persisted the king. Nothing whatever, said Alice. That's very important, the king said, turning to the jury. They were just beginning to write this down on their slates when the white rabbit interrupted... Unimportant, your majesty means, of course, he said in a very respectful tone, but frowning and making faces at him as he spoke. Unimportant, of course, I meant, the king hastily said, and went on to himself in an undertone. Important, unimportant, unimportant, important, as if he were trying which word sounded best. Some of the jury wrote it down important, and some unimportant. Alice could see this, and she was near enough to look over their slates, as she was near enough to look over their slates. But it doesn't matter a bit, she thought to herself. I love that last... It doesn't matter a bit. What's her antecedent there? What doesn't matter a bit, exactly? Um, is she coming down on the side of unimportant, right? Like the distinction between nothing and nothing, whatever, is not an important distinction. And so she's saying... It is indeed unimportant. It doesn't, in in that sense, it doesn't matter a bit. Or is she saying that it doesn't matter a bit whether they write down important or unimportant, right? Because uh, the you know the the these jurors and their notes are already sufficiently useless even without this particular little piece of confusion. Um, I'm not really sure which one of those things she means, but of course. Here, in one sense, we have the sort of ultimate example of what I was just talking about, right? About the um, being very aware of the significance of your words. Um, <laughs> unimportant, your majesty, means, of course, right? Naturally, what you actually meant was unimportant. I'm going to completely reverse your. And notice he's instructing, this is the judge instructing the jury. That's very important the king said, turning to the jury. That's exactly the kind of thing, by the way, that the judge is sort of supposed to do in his summing up uh, to the jury. It's one of the roles of the judge uh, to point out what he believes to be particularly important pieces of evidence. He's guiding the jury, um, which means, of course, the judge has uh, a very... Um, it's very easy for the judge to bias the analysis of the evidence quite thoroughly, right? Um, uh it's one of the sort of weaknesses of the system there. But um, anyway, so he says, doing his job, that's very important. And the white rabbit breaks in. The herald, right, the sort of bailiff, uh, interrupts and corrects him. Unimportant, your majesty, means, of course. 
right? Not, of, of course, of course. What you clearly meant was that it's unimportant. Um, and he hastily agrees with the correction, but it's quite clear that he doesn't really know in the end whether to accept the correction or not. Unimportant? Important? Unimportant. Unimportant? Important. Um, as if he were trying which word sounded best. Wait, is that really the important question here, King? Right? Um, <clears throat> if the king instructing the jurors what is unimportant or what is important in the evidence, if that's a distinction of speech that doesn't matter, then what does matter in the context of the trial, right? Um, uh, and instead he's just trying to figure out what, like, what is the most euphonious phrase? Is that's very important or is that's very unimportant? Which one sounds better? Um, surely should be the last question you should be asking here, right? Um, yeah, by the way, I was particularly proud of my subtitle of this slide. Um, for those of you who can't see it, my subtitle is Unimportant Distinction. A little wordplay on an important or unimportant distinction. I was kind of proud of that, I have to admit. Um, but, um, but yeah, so we have this whole question of saying what you mean brought to its sort of ultimate absurdity here in this moment. Um, as the king is struggling to make a purely aesthetic choice as to whether he's going to instruct the jury that a particular piece of evidence is important or unimportant um, one way or the other. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Arthur prefers a euphonium phrase. Well, Arthur, it would be um, uh, no more ridiculous to substitute euphonium for euphonious in this instance. Uh, than it is to substitute unimportant for important, important for sure. Um, but, um, yeah. Anyway, okay. We finally get into some hard-hitting uh, forensic analysis um, when they discover this set of verses, right? This paper. Um, it was not in the possession, actually, of the knave. Uh, they didn't find it on this person. Um and uh, one of the are they in the prisoner's handwriting? Asked another of the jurymen. No, they're not, said the white rabbit. And that's the queerest thing about it. The jury all looked puzzled. He must have imitated somebody else's hand, said the king. The jury all brightened up again. Please, your majesty, said the knave. I didn't write it, and they can't prove that I did. There's no name signed at the end. If you didn't sign it, said the king, that only makes the matter worse. You must have meant some mischief, or else you'd have signed your name like an honest man. There was a general clapping of hands at this. It was the first really clever thing the king had said all day. That proves his guilt, of course, said the queen. So, off with... It doesn't prove anything of the sort, said Alice. Why, don't, why you don't even know what they're about. <laughs> I just love how every time... Lewis Carroll is sort of developing a joke. Right at the end, he sort of adds this new... Like, right when you think you see where the joke is going, he adds a new joke at the very end, right? Um, so, of course, all of this cunning uh, uh, forensic 
examination. Um, what they have is a piece of evidence, a set of verses, right, a, a, some poetry, written on a piece of paper that was found near the nave, um, not in his possession, nor in his handwriting, right? Um, and uh, this is taken to be the damning evidence, uh, clearly, of the nave. This is the this is the the the, the sort of crown crowning um, uh, prosecution evidence here against the nave. Um, they are so convinced um, that clearly the nave must be guilty. Uh, remember in the in the nursery rhyme, we proceed straight to the sentence, right? Um, they're so convinced the knave must be guilty that none of the things, none of the pieces of evidence against this piece of paper even being relevant to the knave, um, are, they're all taken as condemning pieces of evidence, right? Um, the fact that it's not in his handwriting is very suspicious. It shows he must have imitated somebody else's hand, which is a very suspicious thing to do. Um, the knave points out with some simplicity that there's no name signed at the end so they can't possibly prove that this uh that these verses are his that he wrote them after all they're not in his handwriting right um which of course the king turns upon him if he didn't sign it then he that proves that he meant mischief or else he'd have signed his name like an honest man right so he is clearly dishonest he has left off his name imitated someone else's hand and then planted the paper apparently not on himself, right? So that this uh, piece of paper, which has been apparently shown to be mostly wholly irrelevant to the knave entirely, um, everything that suggests that it has nothing to do with either the knave or this case, um, uh, just goes to further demonstrate the knave's guilt in the mind of the king. Um, yes, Edith, you're right. The whole trial absolutely does embrace a whole bunch of logical fallacies. It uh, it sort of jokes and illustrates many of these things. Uh, JJ is one, wondering how Alice managed to stumble into an internet argument here. Uh, a very telling satirical question there, JJ. I totally agree with you. Um, uh, and yes, as Spartan says, um, this is... Um, this is the blueprint for proving all conspiracy theories, right? They're so clever. Uh, 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 they're so clever to hide all their tracks, right? Yeah. So the less evidence there is to support it, the more evidence there is of conspiracy, obviously, right? Um, it just shows you what a pervasive uh, conspiracy it must be when all of the signs are covered so very thoroughly. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, but, of course, you see the final twist at the end, right? So Alice stands up and finally says the thing which, you know, although everyone else is really impressed, we're sort of laughing at this, right, because of the obviously fallacious nature of this argumentation. And Alice seems about to call that out. It doesn't prove anything of the sort. Why, you don't even know what they're about. Wait, okay. So I mean, on the one hand, it's, she's not wrong, right? Like, they, they, they're trying to prove whether or not he wrote, you know, they're, they're trying to, they're arguing about whether or not he wrote this piece of paper when they have no idea if the piece of paper is even relevant to the case at all, right? So in that sense, Alice is right, um, that you're making a big deal out of a piece of evidence that you don't even know is, uh, uh, has anything to do with the stealing of tarts, right? Or gives you any clues about that. Um, and, uh, 
But of course, there's another sense in which we see, I think, Alice missing the point almost as much, right? That uh, if the paper is not written by him, is not his, not written by him, it doesn't necessarily really matter what the poem is about, actually, right? Um, if it's not an admissible piece of evidence, then then who cares what the poem is about, really? The only way that the substance of the poem would be relevant to this case is if we knew it had been written by the knave and, you know, uh, and if all those other things had been established. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so we go on. Let's um, Let's look at the damning evidence here. They told me you had been to her and mentioned me to him. She gave me a good character, but said I could not swim. She sent them word I had not gone. We knew it to be true. If she should push the matter on, what would become of you? I gave her one, they gave him two, you gave us three or more. They all returned from him to you, though they were mine before. If I or she should chance to be involved in this affair, he trusts to you to set them free, exactly as we were. My notion was that you had been, before she had this fit, an obstacle that came between him and ourselves and it. Don't let him know she liked them best, for this must ever be a secret kept from all the rest between yourself and me. I think this is a fun poem. Um, so notice first the shape of it. Um, they told me you had been to her. They told me you had been to her and mentioned me to him. She gave me a good character, but said I could not swim. Um, this should be, this is common verse. This should be very familiar to you. Um, iambic, they told me you had been to her. He sent them word I had not gone. Um, and remember, when you're trying to figure out if it's iams or trochees, what do you do? Look at the two-syllable words, right? Um, uh, look at the two-syllable words and do most of them have the uh, uh, stress uh, on the first or second syllable. Um, uh, and you'll find, like, I'm look, I'm staring right now at verse 3 there, returned before, um, though there's a lot of... Um, uh, there's a lot of one-syllable words. It's not true of every single two-syllable word. Um, uh, because sometimes you'll get, you know, and mentioned me to him, like mentioned. The stress is at the beginning, because we get the and beforehand, right? But anyway. Um, they told me you had been to her four beats and mentioned me to him three beats. So the alternating three beats, four beats. Uh, this is called common verse, right? This is very simple. Um, this is one of Tolkien's favorite verses. We see a lot of the Hobbit poetry in this. It's also very similar to the elf poetry we can see in some places in Tolkien. Um, anyway, so this is a very, very familiar meter. Um, notice the way, as is not at all surprising, um, that when you get this kind of alternating common verse structure, it's very c frequent that we see uh, rhyming on the B lines, right? Um uh, the, the 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 even numbered lines right um the the three beat lines um in this case we get both right we're a b a b here the long lines rhyme with each other and the short lines rhyme with each other as well um leaving us with a a a, a pretty sing-songy um uh pretty sing-songy rhythm here 
both with the regular rhyme and with the regular meter. But I would say one of the things that's interesting to me about this poem, the sound shape of this poem, I mean, is its failure in several ways. Um, It's almost very even, but it has some significant exceptions, right? As in the first stanza. They told me you had been to her and mentioned me to him. She gave me a good character, but said I could not swim. Character. Um, Rhyming character with her is awkward. Um, It's an awkward rhyme. And the meter is awkward, too. Character is the awkward word here. She gave me a good character. Um, it works, but it's it's awkward. Um, one of the reasons, notice, in order to make it work, you've got to stress the a. Uh. She gave me a good character. No one talks like that. Like, that's um, weird. She gave me a good character is how you would normally read that. She gave me a good character. Um, the ter, the final syllable, you almost swallow it in the word character. Um, it's not a... Uh, you don't accent the vowel sound in that final syllable of the word character, generally. Um, and again, the me, uh, in the middle of the line really messes up uh, the rhythm as well. And it's not the only place. There's a bunch of these kinds of things. Um, just awkward spots in the poetry. Um, now, sometimes awkward spots happen, right? I mean, writing uh, good rhymes with perfect meter is not easy. But Carroll can do it, right? I mean, Lewis Carroll's verse is spectacular. Um, he's really good at doing this kind of thing, even very cleverly with long words and, and, and clever turns of phrase. So I absolutely, from the poetry I've seen in this book so far, do not believe that this just happened by accident here. Um, anyway, so we'll see if that those stumbles in the verse um, might happen at some interesting moments. Um, in stanza one, it happens at the moment that we get this sort of weird comic turn, right? Um, she gave me a good character, but said I could not swim, which seems to me um, uh, yeah, now, so Spartan, I know that in British English it would be pronounced rather differently, but I still don't think the indefinite article would be stressed unless you are making a particular point. Um, like if you say, you know, um, you know, a thing, meaning one of those things, right? Like, um, uh, you know, basically if you're stressing the difference between indefinite and definite article, right? Um, like if somebody said like, um, um, you know, she gave him the cat and you respond by saying, well, she gave him a cat, right? Um, that's a, a, a place where you would stress, you know, the indefinite article, right, in order to convey something. But again, normally, I just, I, I don't think you normally would. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I don't think, I don't think even an English person would stress the A there, again, unless they were making a particular point of that kind. Um, but um, anyway, okay.
Um, right. Um, yeah, this is short for character reference. That's exactly right. When you give someone a good character, that means that you, um, uh, you, you know, write them a recommendation, right? You, you, uh, bear witness to the fact that they're a, you know, upstanding person or whatever. Um, and that's very frequently shortened to, uh, you know, to give someone a character, meaning to write them a letter of reference or to vouch for them, essentially. Okay. Um, his inability to swim seems sort of irrelevant, but then again, it's hard to know, right? Um, what's this poem about? They told me you had been to her and mentioned me to him. Oh, what? They told me that you had been to her and that you, presumably, had mentioned me to him. Well, there's a whole lot of characters in this, those first two verses. right? We've got the they who are doing the telling. There's the you and the me. And then there's her and him. So we have at least six people involved here, right? Not to mention, notice we've taken care of all of the pronouns, <laughs> right? Me, you, him, her, them are all involved uh, in this. Um, she gave me a good character, but said I could not swim. Again, we have no idea how germane his ability to swim is to this particular character reference. She sent them word, I had not gone. We know it to be true. If she should push the matter on, what would become of you? What, what matter? I hadn't gone where? Why do they care? Who are we? We finally get we. We was the only pronoun we'd been missing, right? Um, we finally get we. We know it to be true. What do we know to be true? The fact that I had not gone? Where? And why? Okay, if she should push the matter on, what, what, what matter? Being pushed on with whom? What would become of you? What does it matter? Wait a second. Why is something bad going to happen to you because I didn't go somewhere if she pushes the point? I gave her one. They gave him two. You gave us three or more. What? They all returned from him to you, though they were mine before. What on earth are we talking about here? Edith says this this sounds like a story problem. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um okay, if I or she should chance to be involved in this affair, he trusts to you to set them free exactly as we were. Is the they that are being set free, is that the things that were mine before? Or is it the they that got word that I hadn't gone somewhere? Or is it the they who told me that you had been to her? I'm so confused. Um, if I or she should chance to be involved in this affair, and we have no idea what 
the affair is, right? My notion was that you had been, before she had this fit, an obstacle that came between him and ourselves and it. Don't let him know she likes them best, for this must ever be, a secret kept from all the rest between yourself and me. Okay, Rachel, I agree with you. This seems to be a poem about pronouns, right? Um, fun with pronouns would be my little... Um, uh, uh, because it's all... The pronouns are absolutely the heroes uh, of, this, of this poem. We cannot possibly figure out what's happening, right? Um, and of course, it's, this is what you would expect, In a poem, sorry, in a poem about pronouns, what's the problem with a, pro, a, 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 a poem about pronouns? Is that you have all these pronouns and no antecedents, right? Um, we don't know what any of these pronouns refer to. We don't know who any of the people are, right? Um, we don't know any references. In fact, in retrospect, the but said I could not swim line still stands out and seems strange. It seems strange before. Why do we care whether or not he could swim? Now, what seemed weird because it was a random extraneous detail, in retrospect, now seems weird because it's one of the most concrete things that's said. That, that becomes a strange line because I can understand it. Right? I don't know why I care um, and why she's saying that he couldn't swim. And to whom she's saying that? Okay, there's still a lot I don't understand about the context, but at least that statement. She gave me a good character, but said I could not swim. That's a pair of line that makes sense. I understand what those two lines are about, right? Most of this is completely opaque. And it's opaque because with all pronouns and no nouns, we can't possibly know what they're referring to. I gave her one, they gave him two, you gave us three or more. What? They all return from him to you, though they were mine before. What were, right? Um, this sounds like a riddle, right? Um, yeah, right. It does sound kind of like a code, and only someone up to something sinister would write in code. So JJ is concluding, obviously, this proves that the knave is guilty, uh, plainly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, when you have all pronouns and no nouns, almost no nouns, right, um, it becomes impossible to see. And does, yeah, Carrie says, I was looking for the riddle here. Yeah, exactly. It does sound like a riddle, right? Um, the, the few nouns that we get, like this affair, hey, look, it's a noun, right? If I or she should chance to be involved in this affair... He trusts to you to set them free exactly as we were. That's one, by the way, I believe affair and were is a much better rhyme in, in British English than it is in American English. Um, involved in this affair exactly as we were. I mean, it's, it's still not a perfect rhyme, but it's a lot closer than in American, uh, for sure. Um, but anyway, uh, let's count for a second. How many nouns do we get? We get one noun. In stanza four here, affair. My notion, hey, that's a noun, was that you had been before she had this fit. 
That's a noun, too. An obstacle. Look at this. Three nouns. We don't understand what any of them are. We still have no context. A secret. Ah, oh, that's an important noun. Okay, so that brings us to a total of five nouns in three stanzas down here. And then what do we have? Um, no nouns in stanza three. Word. Matter. Um, character. Yep. No, this is a pronoun, JJ. This and it. And I'm not counting the ver the sorry the numbers either. They gave her, I, I gave her one. They gave him two. I'm not counting those as proper nouns either. Um, sorry, not proper nouns in the proper noun sense. Never mind. Um, so what did I have? Uh, two, character, matter, word, three, plus five, eight. Eight total nouns in six stanzas. That's pretty impressive. And so many pronouns. So, what's the point? I mean, it's funny how when you speak on pronouns like this, you seem to be saying something very particular. Um, but it's n impossible. Not just unclear, it's impossible to tell. Um what it's even about, right? What it's talking about at all. Which shows this other kind of vulnerability of language, in a sense. But it's especially funny in the context when this is supposed to be evidence in a trial, right? Um, these are the damning verses that are going to condemn the knave um, that prove his guilt, according to the king and queen, right? Um, and it's inscrutable. But, of course, as the king is going to show, this is what enables it to be the damning verses, right? Because if you don't have any context, you can place it in any context you want. The king, of course, is going to say, I gave her one, they gave him two, you gave us three or more. Um, obviously, that's about the tarts, right? He's going to supply the antecedent. The antecedent is the tarts uh, that the knave stole, right? This is about him splitting up the booty, Right uh, of his uh, of his ill splitting up his ill-gotten gains, um, and uh, um, yeah. So if you have no antecedents, you can attach it to anything you want. Um, a matter that is entirely made out of pronouns can be made to mean anything you want it to mean. Right. Um, anyway, let's. Uh, continue on here I want to um, I want to talk about the very end yeah it's the very end of the book um, so I'm going to go a tiny bit late tonight but um, but we'll get to the end of Alice in Wonderland after Alice defies the cards and they all fly up into the air and uh, start to rain down on her not very doesn't seem in much danger of like losing her head or something um uh, by the way, a contrast, a close reading of the Disney adaptation of this, I think would be very interesting because it's, the differences are fascinating to me, but 
Anyway, um, nuts, not for tonight. Anyhow, um, the ending. She wakes up. Alice wakes up. Um, and the there are leaves, dry leaves, falling on her, and that's what seems to have suggested the cards flying through the air. Um, and she, her sister is there, and she tells her sister all about her dream. And her sister tells her to forget about it, and Alice goes trotting off, right? Then the action turns to her sister, and we finish the book, not with Alice, but with Alice's, I believe, older sister. But her sister sat still just as she left, just as she left her, leaning her head on her hand, watching the setting sun, and thinking of little Alice and all her wonderful adventures, till she too began dreaming after a fashion, and this was her dream. First she dreamed about little Alice herself. Once again the tiny hands were clasped upon her knee, and the bright eager eyes were looking up into hers. She could hear the very tones of her voice, and see that queer little toss of her head to keep back the wandering hair that would always get into her eyes. And still, as she listened, or seemed to listen, the whole place around her became alive with the strange creatures of her little sister's dream. The long grass rustled at her feet as the white rabbit hurried by. The frightened mouse splashed his way through the neighboring pool. She could hear the rattle of the teacups as the March Hare and his friends shared their never-ending meal, and the shrill voice of the queen ordering off her unfortunate guests to execution. Once more the pig baby was sneezing on the duchess's knee, while plates and dishes crashed around it. Once more the shriek of the griffin, the squeaking of the wizard's slate pencil, and the choking of the suppressed guinea pigs filled the air, mixed up with the distant sob of the miserable mock turtle. Okay. Um, well, let's keep reading, actually. I want to read all the way to the end. So she sat on with closed eyes, and half believed herself in Wonderland, though she knew she had but to open them again, and all would change to dull reality. The grass would only be rustling in the wind, and the pool rippling to the... <clears throat> to the waving of the reeds. The rattling teacups would change to tinkling sheep bells, and the queen's shrill cries to the voice of the shepherd boy. And the sneeze of the baby, the shriek of the griffin, and all the other queer noises would change, she knew, to the confused clamor of the busy farmyard, while the lowing of the cattle in the distance would take the place of the mock turtle's heavy sobs. Lastly, she pictured to herself how this same little sister of hers would in the aftertime be herself a grown woman, and how she would keep through all her riper years the simple and loving heart of her childhood, and how she would gather about her other little children, and make their eyes bright and eager with many a strange tale, perhaps even with the dream of Wonderland of long ago, and how she would feel with all their simple sorrows, and find a pleasure in all their simple joys, remembering her own child life and the happy summer days. So, what just happened here? Where does Lewis Carroll leave us? Um, so, the first question that I feel myself wanting to ask is, why the sister? Why do we get the big sister, the intervention of the big sister here, the displacement of the story? We've had Alice and we've had the narrator. Right, and the narrator, of course, has been quite active at various times. Uh, more, you know, sometimes more and sometimes less 
um, active a character. Now we get the sudden introduction of um, we get the, the the sudden introduction of the the big sister character, whom I don't think we even knew existed, right? Um, we do get back to the introductory poem, Rachel, in a sense, though not quite. Right? Remember, there were the three girls there, um, and uh, Alice certainly has at times reminded us of Tertia, right, who kept interrupting the story um, no more than once a minute. Um, ask the Dormouse, right, about Alice and her interrupting stories. But, um, uh, so yeah, we get, um, we do get a, a sort of a memory of that, but it's not even in that sense a really clear memory, exactly, of, uh, um, a really clear memory of the um, the poem because we, we had three girls involved there and here there are only two, right? So, I mean, it kind of brings us back to that, but not exactly. Um, uh, okay, we get, thank you, JJ. We do get a reference. I was beginning to get very tired of sitting by her sister on the bank and of having nothing to do. Once or twice, she had peeped into the book her sister was reading, but it had no pictures or conversations in it. And what is the use of a book, thought Alice, without pictures or conversation? There you go. There you go. So the older sister is there, but she's not properly a character, right? That is to say, she's a, she's a piece of scenery for Alice. Right. And so this is why I found it so surprising when the scene shifts, the narratorial focus, right? When Alice literally wanders out of the story and leaving her sister behind. And what we get in the end um, is the sister's contemplation. And of course, one thing that is kind of immediately noticeable about that is that Alice's sister becomes this kind of middle term, right? On the one hand, we have Alice. Um, and what is emphasized about Alice in the perspective of the big sister is Alice's youth, right? The tiny hands clasped upon her knee, the bright, eager eyes looking up into hers, the very tones of her voice, the queer little toss of her head to keep back the wandering hair that would always get into her eyes. Um, isn't she adorable? Little Alice, right? Now, that was very different from Alice's perspective on herself, Right? Alice thinks herself a very big girl, a very sophisticated girl. Right? And of course, in her story, she's often getting bigger, as we talked about, and looking down with some superiority on the creatures around her in her dream. And so we get this sort of refreshed perspective, right? this, this different perspective on Alice, this reminder that Alice is just a little girl with the tiny hands and the bright, eager eyes and all that. Right? But of course... The sister doesn't leave it there. She then pictures to herself how this little sister of hers, Alice, would be a grown woman. So we get the imagination of the sister at the end, her reflecting on Alice in Alice's youth right now, and then her imagining Alice in the future being a grown-up woman with other children, right? Um, and making their eyes bright and eager with many a strange tale. So the brightness of the eyes that Alice has right now as a child is going to be passed on, right? Alice is going to pass on the brightness of those eyes uh, to other little children, possibly her own daughters. Um, so we've got Alice, the recollection that Alice is a child, and then Alice as a grown-up. And the kind of the middle figure there is the older sister, who, of course, chronologically is between them. The big sister is, I think, herself perhaps probably not a grown woman yet. 
We don't know exactly how old the older sister is, but I'm guessing that the older sister is not, in fact, quite grown up yet. Um, and yet she's imagining, she's picturing Alice down and then she's picturing Alice up, right? Um, she's picturing Alice small and then she's picturing Alice big, um, uh, a big grown girl at the end. Um, and uh, so that is one of the patterns that jumps out to me about sort of the significance of taking the older sister as this sort of framing moment here at the end. We also have her in this kind of evaluating state, right? As she's thinking about all these, um, you know, all these strange creatures uh, and funny stories in Alice's dream, right? And notice like what happens. There's, she has a dream herself, a sort of dream, right? She began dreaming after a fashion, and she does not just, like Alice does, she doesn't just dream about Wonderland. She does dream about Wonderland, right? And all of a sudden, Wonderland comes alive around her. The rabbit, the mouse, the march hare, the queen, the griffin, the mock turtle, everybody, right? She's suddenly surrounded by Alice's dream characters, right? But at the same time, she's not just having that dream because she doesn't fall asleep and then dream that she's falling down the rabbit hole, right? She falls asleep and dreams and dreams of Alice. And then when she's dreaming, like the turning point there, as she listened or seemed to listen, the whole place around her became alive with the strange creatures of her little sister's dream, right? Um, I'm not sure. Who's listening to whom here, do you think? The syntax of that sentence, because that whole paragraph is one sentence. It's a little confusing. First, she dreamed about little Alice herself, Colin. Once again, the tiny hands... So this is describing the dream of Alice. Tiny hands clasped on her knee, the bright eyes looking up into hers, looking up into the sisters, right? Dash. She could hear the very tones of her voice. Okay, so it's Alice speaking. And see that little queer toss of the head as she kept back the wandering hair. So she's speaking and tossing her head while Alice is speaking. And still as she listened, so she, the sister, okay, now I'm tracking. She, the sister, listened or seemed to listen. The whole place around her became alive. So Alice is transmitting to the sister in the dream. So she doesn't have a dream about Wonderland. She has a dream about Alice. And in her dream about Alice, Alice is telling the story of Wonderland, which is what just happened in the real world. Alice telling the story of Wonderland, but in the but the dream Alice is able to actually sort of conjure the Wonderland creatures. So when Alice is talking, Dream Alice is talking to Dream Sister in the sister's dream. Wonderland comes to life around the Dream Sister, right? But then, so she sat on with closed eyes, the sister here, and half believed herself in Wonderland though she knew she had but to open them again, and all would change to dull reality. And then we've got the the things, just like the cards change to leaves, right? Everything else is going gonna, is gonna to be have its corollary in something real and boring, right? All of these wild, absurd, crazy creatures are going to become normal, everyday things. If she opens their eyes, they're going to turn into dull reality. Now, this is my question. When does the dream stop? 
Is she having a dream? Is it still part of the dream? So she sat on with closed eyes. In her dream? Is this the dream sister or the sister? Do you see what I mean? Right? Like, because, you know, she, the sister is in her own dream. Alice, she dreams about Alice. And in her dream about Alice, Alice is talking to her sister. Right? And then she, dream sister, is then surrounded by the creatures. Right? But then we have she, sister, sitting on with closed eyes. So that's presumably not dream sister. That's real sister. And so she's dreaming, but it's only dreaming after a fashion, right? Um, She's daydreaming, really, because she's consciously remaining with her eyes closed because she's half believing in Wonderland, right? And she knows if she opens her eyes and looks at the world around her, then all of the make-believe stuff, all the Wonderland creatures are going to be transformed into dull reality. So there's an act of will on the part of sister, real sister, that she's going to stay in her little daydream with Dream Alice, right? Listening to Dream Alice's Wonderland stories and therefore seeing, or what was that phrase? Um, right, the place became alive with the strange creatures. But she's only half-believing herself in Wonderland, right? She doesn't really believe that she's in Wonderland. There's an element of willing suspension of disbelief here because she knows what's going to happen. She knows the reality. She knows dull reality. Um, Are we to understand again another reason to shift from Alice to sister? Um, does Alice have a less clear idea of dull reality? That seems very possible. When we think about the kinds of questions that Alice asked, the kind of framework that she was operating under, remember how she becomes convinced that she's somebody else. She must be somebody else, right? Um, that's the only logical conclusion. If you don't know something that you know that you know, you must be somebody else, right? Um, if you know you know something and you can't come up with that information, then obviously you must be somebody else, right? This is the way that Alice thinks, has been thinking, right, through the story. Sister doesn't think that way. She knows dull reality. She knows the difference between dull reality and Wonderland, and she is deliberately lingering for a moment in Wonderland, in her sister's Wonderland. The Wonderland that her sister more than half believes in, I think. Right? Um, and yet, Alice was dreaming. Right? Um, yeah. And you're right, Radio Friendly. We do need to return to the poem at the beginning. Um, In a wonderland they lie, dreaming as the days go by, dreaming as the summers die, ever drifting down the stream, lingering in the golden gleam. Life, what is it but a dream? Um, Notice how the poem there blurs the boundaries between reality and wonderland. Life, what is it but a dream? Right. Well, it's dull. It's not the dream, right? Um, We see her consciously holding on to the dream because she only half believes it. And she knows 
the truth of dull reality. And then she pictures the grown-up Alice. Right? So there she is in the middle, half-believing. Alice, there's young Alice seeming more wholehearted in her belief. Right? Alice, dream Alice, at least, actually surrounded by the Wonderland creatures. Then you have sister, half-believing in those. Um, Suspending disbelief, keeping her eyes closed so that she can avoid dull reality for a little bit longer. But then you have the third paradigm, right? Young Alice, sister, um, in that halfway state. And then you have grown-up Alice. Alice, a grown woman. And how she keeps through all her riper years the simple and loving heart of her childhood. And now she's not gathering about her the queer children, the queer creatures of um, Wonderland. She's gathering about her other little children. And she's making their eyes bright with a strange tale, even the dream of Wonderland of long ago. So we see in two different ways that there's a different kind of reality to Wonderland, right? That remains even once dull reality has been sort of fully plunged into, right? And one becomes a real grown-up, right? Even a parent, potentially. Um, the greatest shock of all, right? Um, I say in two ways it lingers. One, in stories, right? It remains a story that she can tell and bring brightness and eagerness to the eyes of the other children, Right? Um, but also we see she herself, that is dream slash theoretical grown-up Alice, um, retains the simple and loving heart of her childhood. Um, Alice appears to be, or at least in the imagination of her sister, grown-up Alice is still a, a wonderful person because she retains something. Um, because she's not changed, Right? Um, she's not set aside the good things from her childhood. Um, Alice is a delightful child because of her simple and loving heart, we're told. Tell that to the mouse in the pool, one would be tempted to say, or to the guinea pigs, perhaps. Um, but, um, uh, but in any case, um, there does seem to be this, you know, the, the brightness of the eye, um, uh, going back to the Dream Alice description there, um, bright, eager eyes, um, her tones of voice. Um, her bright, eager eyes get passed on, but also do seem to enrich uh, her grown-up life. And how she would feel, she, grown-up Alice, would feel with all their simple sorrows, the children, find a pleasure in their simple joys, remembering her own child life, and the happy summer days. Her memories of her child life and the happy summer days will enable her, as a grown-up, to feel with all of their simple sorrows and find pleasure in all their simple joys. Um, Spartan, I agree that um, uh, this does the sister does begin to sound like another stage of Alice herself. Um, 
you know, um, Spartan says Alice and her sister seem to be the same person from different perspectives. Almost, or at least, again, it's an external perspective on Alice. Um, but yeah, we do see a kind of uh, um, continuity, in a sense, there, right? I think. Um, so we get, in the end, a serious kind of contemplation of growing up, right? And in the end, I think also a defense of Wonderland, right? A defense of the um, the silliness of Wonderland. Um, and uh, that's... Well, it's very... Uh, I keep sort of waiting... Um, you know, reading through this section, I kind of waited for the punchline, almost, right? Like, I thought this was going to turn into a joke. But it doesn't really, I think, seem to turn into a joke. It seems, in the end, to be a serious contemplation of the value of stories like this. Um, and of what it means to grow up. Um, of course, that's another way of characterizing, in one sense, all of Alice's adventures, right? She keeps growing up awkwardly, right? And inappropriately, uh, uh, and uh, uh, quite awkwardly in some ways, right? Or in awkward contexts, like inside the White Rabbit's house or whatever. Um, you know, near the bird's nest when her neck grows, you know, 20 feet long. Um, but when she really does grow up, all of these things are going to be useful to her, right? There is a moral at the end of this story. And if there's a moral at the end of this story, um, which is, of course, a thing that Lewis Carroll has been poking fun of mercilessly throughout this story, right? And yet at the end, it's almost like the final joke is that he puts a moral at the end of the story, right? And that moral would seem to be something like silly stories and fairy tales are, are important... Silly tales and fa- silly stories and fairy tales, are they unimportant or are they important? Important, unimportant. Um, the answer would seem to be important. Well, both in a sense, right? Yeah, it's the things themselves: the mock turtle and the griffin and the um, uh, the bloodthirsty queen and everything else. They're they're silly. They're not. Im- they're unimportant, right? Um, and yet the thing as a whole is important, right? Um, It is kind of both important and also unimportant as well. Well, we'll have more time to think about this because, of course, we're done with this book, but we're also simultaneously not done with this book because we are talking about both Alice in Wonderland and also Through the Looking Glass. Um, So next time, whenever that time may be, and I will try... um, Keep your eyes on... um, uh, the Signum and Mythgard uh, social media pages, um, uh, and I will I will we'll try to keep that updated as to whether we're meeting or not. My problem is I'm not sure my travel plans, um, so um, I may be back on Wednesday nights, um, either or both of the next two Wednesday nights, or I may not. I'm not sure. So um, stay tuned for that. Uh, whenever we do meet again, however, we will talk about Through the Looking Glass. So please do read the first couple chapters of Through the Looking Glass. Um, 
we will get a much more elaborate frame narrative on Alice's story before she has her second adventure. And um, uh, so we will focus first on establishing the frame and how the frame impacts what we see as we move forward in the story. Um, and those of you, of course, who have been looking for, who have been hoping for more information on Dinah, um, uh, Alice's cat, uh, are uh, going to be heavier curiosity gratified uh, in the next sequel story. So thanks very much uh, uh, for joining me here tonight. Um, I'll be back as soon as we can, and we will jump into Through the Looking Glass, which is quite my favorite piece uh, by Lewis Carroll. Uh, so thanks, everybody, um, and I will see you guys around soon. Bye now.